You are listening to House of Football, brought to you by Sports Joe. Hello, I'm Eric Lawler. You're very welcome to episode 31 of House of Football with Sports Joe. Delighted to say, joined in studio today by uh, uh, our, our man from Joe and the call and making his debut on House of Football today, the Graham Garland, League of Ireland legend. How are you? I wouldn't say that, no. Yeah, I'm good, yeah. Are you well now, in fairness? When a man has won three FAA Cups in a row, that's something to behold. Like, in this day and age, when, especially as a postman, FAA Cup finals are a precious commodity, and uh, we're delighted if we even get to a final, but we'd like to win. But you won three in a row at the old Lansdowne Road. Yeah, it was brilliant, yeah. I was, um, do you know what? Some of the best nights of my life. I can imagine, were brilliant, yeah. Uh, But also as well, the, the, the great thing about it as well, Graham, not with, like, you know, fashion, not fashionably big clubs. Longford Town, two in a row, and then move the draw to that and win it three in a row. Like, that's just... Yeah, like, look, there's an element of luck to it as well that I landed into a great team in Longford. What a group of players. Alan Matthews. Alan Matthews in charge. Aaron Callaghan was the assistant. And then, like, you look at the team. We're having a 20-year reunion this year at the cup final. And um, I look at the team... Stephen O'Brien and Gold, Digger O'Brien, Barry Ferguson, like my best friend in, in football and outside of football, Sean Dillon was in the team at the time. We'd, I'd known Sean since he was 16. I'd be, I'd be godfather to Sean, Sean's eldest son, Shay. Uh, people like that, that for any kid coming back from the UK who was a bit broken, I know he was probably a little bit broken coming back from the UK, going into that dressing room where it was like, look, we're going to help. That everybody helped and everybody dug in and everybody, you know, you turned up on your first day. I remember turning up my first match to play for Longford, like, and all I had was my wash bag, like, and I was like, there's no towel put out, no <laughs> pair of pants to wear under your... What you were used yeah, to. Yeah, what you were used to. Like, you're like, bring your own gear. Like, <laughs> and, I, and that level of realism to go, look, you're back here now. and But you need that as well to go, look, you just need to reset. And, like, they took any bravado I had out because... Like, again, I would have acted like I thought it was the man, but underneath it all, it was built on sand, like, at the time. And it gave you a realism and look, this is where we're at. But the cup finals were, were brilliant. I remember we played Galway in the semi-final and uh, we beat the 1-0, Sean Francis scored. And that got us into the final. And then I was on the bench for the first cup final, 3 Shane Barrett scores the last-minute winner against Pats. Well, not a last-minute winner. He breaks away and scores and seals and we knew it was done. We had an unbelievable night that night. Uh, <laughs> but see, winning it with the provincial sides, as you call it, like it, 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 it does. Look, there's an all Ireland feel to it at times. You're going back, and the whole town is out. That's what I was going to say. There must have been some feverish celebrations down the likes of Longford and Drogheda, and the build up, even like yeah, the flags everywhere. Yeah, and the... it was unbelievable. Like, and and then you you see how much it means to them, and it still means to them to this day. And then in 04, I got a player in my team that played was from Longford. He wasn't even born. Wasn't <laughs> one but like he <laughs> goes, make you feel old yeah, then, and he sort of goes to me. He's won, he's won. Longford won a cup. <laughs> yeah, we did. Like, and then the 04 final was was brilliant because myself and Sean Dillon played centre back together. We were only twenty one at the time, and uh, just playing beside him was great. And we were one 0 down, and we came back. And Paul Keegan, uh, that wow. played for yeah, Bowes. Yeah, you know, you had two Paul Keegans. One of them I played with at the following year. Paul Keegan, the blonde hair. Oh yes, yes, yes. He had the score for us all year and scores the winner in the cup final. Yeah. And I remember me and him were injured in the first round down in Cork and we were jogging around the pitch. This is my memory. He had planted fasciitis and I was coming back from a groin injury. And we said we'd be back for the final, like just joking. <laughs> but that year we had three replays. Like we, we'd 
Shamrock Rovers in a replay that we beat them. Uh, we at Lone in a replay. We went, we went back to their place and beat them. Same way we went back to Rovers, beat them, and then we had Drogheda in the semi final and we went back and beat them. Last minute winner, Sean Dillon called one in the top corner. And then the following year with with Drogheda was brilliant as well. Like it was, like again, you're just a, like my first three years in the in the league, and I'm in three cup finals. Spoiled, and, spoiled. yeah, and I'm like <laughs> same pegs and all, like joking, but sort of being being a little bit cocky. But it was more just to relax everybody, and I was just enjoying it and took it all in. And it was weird. I was sitting with my mum and dad afterwards up there, and. The lads are all jumping around, and I felt old. And I'm like <laughs> only 22, but I think by the age of 24, I'd I'd won everything in the league. Uh, with throwing in the Satantas and League Cups and stuff, I'd won everything in the yeah, league. You won the league with Drada then, didn't you? Yeah. yeah, and that was like, like I said, I came back the summer of '03. I just turned 20, where I didn't know if I was going to play football anymore. To just as I was torn at twenty five, I'd won won everything in that short space of time. So when you say you, you weren't you weren't sure you're going, is that was that's just part of the like the the heartbreak the, the of being, you know, returning home, almost with your tail between your legs, like a lot of players coming back from England. Yeah, it was like, and I, I I have to credit my family a lot as well as as that long for dressing room, but I I'd been let go from Barnsley. I'd signed for Barnsley when I was seventeen. I'd stayed and done me leaving certs. I went over late. And Barnsley had made a really big deal about getting me because I had a few clubs in for me at the time. Uh, Spores had come over and offered me deals. Like Everton and Leeds were looking at me. I started playing midfield then. And then Barnsley come in and just the way they approached it, I just thought, that's for me. And I knew, to be honest with you, I probably knew me level as well. I thought, look, Barnsley probably suits me. And it's a really good academy at the time. Everything was built beside the stadium. It was brilliant. But then... Three managers later with the first team and the ITV deal had gone bust. So we had a, we had a massive squad. Like So I, I would have played a lot of reserve games in my first year in Barnsley. The following year, you couldn't get into the reserve squad. Right. Like it was mad. Stacked. Yeah, so I couldn't. I was playing at 17, but couldn't get in at 18. And then I I probably made a decision to go to Dundee United then for a year. And it wasn't a great decision my end. But that was when I just got really bad habits, wasn't great, was still hurting from the fact that didn't know how to handle it, like, you know. My wife said to me the other day, she started to crack the joke about football, she says, ah, oh, that's football's your mistress. And I was like, <laughs> I started to look there and I went, no, you are, like, football was my first says, you, you, you came in off the back of it and she just started laughing, but... It was that hurt and rejection of something that you love that you thought, why are you causing me so much pain when all I've ever did was love you, as in the football. Yeah, like, yeah. Unrequited love. Yeah, yeah and yeah. then I came home and, uh, yeah, I was still up and down, didn't really know myself. And then, like the like like I said to me, my family would have been really supportive of me. I have a big family. My sister it's the eldest and I have two older brothers and a younger brother. My mum and dad at the time were like, look, we're not going to let you fail here. So we're going to get you going and whatever it needs to be to get you going. Uh, and then I, like, again, I became really close to Sean Dillon and Sean's the nicest guy in the world. He's probably too nice. <laughs> but he made me realise, look, it's okay to be nice yeah. and, and play football, but I played up with an edge a little bit. But he made me realise, like, it's okay to be vulnerable at times because he was just the nicest guy in the world and everybody, but he got a bit of an edge then by being around me. So that type of stuff happened. But yeah, a lot of it, Going into that dressing room at, at Longford 
where no areas of graces. Everybody helped. Everybody picked up goals. You got slaughtered for if you didn't do your job. You got slaughtered for the gear you wore. You got <laughs> stagged about everything. So you were quickly forced to grow up, kind of yeah, thing, and mature, and, and realize, well, you're still whinge, you're still whinging about that. Yeah. You know, like grow up. Like, what yeah, was yeah. the reception like? against playing against players because I, I know a few stories of boys that came back from England and that would have been like sort of sledging on the pitch that you know lads would, would give them abuse for not making it over England yeah, it wasn't really I never really had any of that you, you just like there was a lot of lads that had come through the league that had only played in the league that would be like you know but the league was really competitive at the time I think people don't realise that how like every team had one great striker in their team that you'd go up against like and then eventually I think so you'd have Bowles would have Glenn Crow, Shells would have Jason Bourne you had rest in peace Mark Farron you had Gary Becker then you they brought in Kevin McHugh then Cork had John O'Flynn and O'Callaghan so you came Kev, up against a lot Kevin of top Doyle. strikers yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and they had gone like they had gone through something similar so there was that thing of ah but that's that's what the league was at the time it was for players either staying with the game here or coming home and a lot of the players in their team had done that like so Barry Ferguson come back from Coventry Sean had come back from Villa Barry being the dad of Evan exactly yeah <laughs> and Evan was born the Friday the Saturday before the second cup final in 04 right and he got in trouble for coming to the final <laughs> the baby Barry, no Barry did oh, right. <laughs> the baby she's like you're going to leave me in hospital Barry was suspended there's a shock but um <laughs> Yeah, but like, and, and that's what it was. And then you had lads like the likes of Alan Murphy, say, who played at, came, he's from Drotted, like, came through at, at Longford and only ever played in Ireland. And he's going, look, he give you a little bit of stick, like, you know, that's that, that's not done here, like, right. you know, you're only off the boat, you know, but <laughs> it, it did make you grow up. Like, and even when I went back over then, I went back over in 2009 to sign for St. Johnson. You're better for it, like you know. You're able to handle the dressing room. You walk in, you you know you're more mature. You can handle the ups and downs of it a lot better than. But yeah, that and even then going to draw it, even that winning mentality and that nastiness we had at Longford, like we we had we needed a little bit of that draw it at the time because the club was so heavily invested in that we were thought of as this people that something was throwing money at, and Paul was trying to build the team, and and. To be part of that was great as well, like because you built something from nothing really. That the investment came in and we all signed, but it was a team that needed to gel. I think we had twelve new signings that first year, and to win the cup that year gave us a taste for it. And Paul done brilliant that year just to keep us going because the first five, the first four months were absolute, like some of the most grueling training sessions you'll ever do. Like, oh really? Yeah, yeah like we we would have done. We would have done doubles on a Monday and a Tuesday with a gym session in between. Wow. And then you trained Wednesday, longer day Wednesday, in Thursday game Friday. And we struggled at the start because we... Just heavy legs and whatever. Yeah, yeah. but he knew he was building something for the, the platform to last us for the next few years. And and look, it was tough. Like, you know, I remember... <laughs> I remember the lads going, we need a day off. <laughs> and, and Simon Webb actually... Ah, Simon Webby. Yeah. yeah, Webby, we need a day off. And I'm like... Now, I would have been a little bit probably vocal for my age at the time, but I was like, look, lads, I, I don't think we should ask for this. I'd already had me rows with Paul at the start of the year, so I was like, I don't think this is going to go well, lads. I'll be honest with you, but if, we're all, if it's democracy and we're all in it together as a team, then if you want to ask for a Wednesday off, like, but 
this isn't going to go well. Like, so we asked for Wednesday off, Paul. Yeah, sort of. We'll think about it. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think about three weeks later, we drew a game. I lost the game. And it got brought back up. And I'm looking around the dressing room going, I told you this was going to go like this. He wasn't going to forget it. Like, But we, we had a reunion there. We played a game up in Drotter for uh, Brendan Lachlan, the kit man who passed away. Oh, yeah, yeah. And Paul came in and he was brilliant. He was great. And all the lads were a bit like, Jay's, he was so relaxed. And he was brilliant. And he was cracking jokes. And he was funny. And seeing a different side to him. And we were thinking, imagine he was a bit like that when we played. And just the intensity. But... Paul didn't know any other way. Yeah, that was his way, and that, that's what won him the, the got him a lot of success. Exactly, really, at the end yeah. of the day, wasn't it? Even as a player, like yeah. you talk about legends, like what a career! What a yeah, I, I remember as a, as a little kid when he started out with Bowes. I actually remember him playing in that old Elvery's jersey that Bowes yeah. used to wear. Go, it's, it's Paul doing, and he was brilliant even then. Yeah. And then he moved on to Roberts <laughs> and Shells <laughs> and all them yeah. other clubs. Um, just uh, just touching on Shamrock Rovers, uh, Graham. They, they've uh, all but confirmed four in a row now, barring the most. The biggest collapse in Irish sport in history. Uh, I think they need a point against Pats, and even if they don't get that, they've two games uh, against Cork and Sligo to get that point. Um, the uh, your impressions on Stephen Bradley and the job he's done at Shamrock Rovers, and uh, and also the comments he made that you know people seem to have this narrative that four in a row is good enough. Why not win five in a row, six in a row, seven in a row? Yeah, like again, we were talking a little bit about it that the last time Rovers done four in a row was eighty seven, and then the team gets broken up and they leave Milltown and the manager who had been part of that four in a row, uh, I know those two managers was Keely and Jim, Jim McLaughlin, he goes to Derry and takes a lot of the squad with him and then Derry go and do a treble and you're like, well, if the Rovers squad had a stead together in 87 and they had a stead in Milltown, would that success have continued? You probably would have said, yeah, judging by it. So I can see why Stephen's saying that comment regarding, well, the squad isn't moving anywhere. I'm not moving anywhere. We're here in Tala. We have a base. We have a training base. Everything's set up for continued success. And that's the way clubs should nearly be. Like, you know, that you, you're, you're, guarant- you're not guaranteeing success, but you're, you're going to have a go at it every year because your, your structures are right. Yeah. And if your structures are right, it gives you that chance to have a go at it. Um, and that's where I think he's coming from. Is like, well, the last time it was done... Again, the team was broken up. They didn't have a ground. They didn't have a training base. The manager left. The players left. That's not happening this year. So I can see why he's saying that. And I, and I and again, it's up to them to keep that going and keep them focused and keep it right. And then it's up to the other clubs to actually go and put Catch in the up. challenge. Yeah. yeah. And and I think you see it with your team, Bowes, where they get to a cup final this year is a great achievement for them considering I always felt this year Bowes were always going to go up because... They were starting to train in the mornings again. Yeah. They had got the planning permission for the new stadium and, and all that stuff that goes with it. That gives the club a lift. And then obviously the training ground at DCU where they're training in the mornings, they were always going to have a, a kick. And they've had a kick at the start of the year where they were excellent. Ha- having that consistency to uh, mount the title challenge, I don't think was there. I think it was a no. little bit too soon. Yeah. Uh, but they're trying to put structures in that allows them that it's not just a flash in the pan that they get into a cup final, that it can be built on success and you see most teams that do well, they're doing well because their foundations are, are good. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, yeah, I think it's, 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 it's a foregone conclusion now at this stage end that Rovers will win four in a row. 
Yeah, more or less. Like, I mean, if they don't, there's something seriously <laughs> yeah. wrong there. But I think what, just to echo what Graham is saying, I think Shamrock Rovers have been the smartest club over the last couple of years. And that's why they have had the success. I always look towards their contract situation as the foundational structures that are in place that allow Rovers to continue their success. They're not constantly losing players. They're not losing their best players to other clubs just because they're not giving them an extra year on their deal. They're, they're sending them down to four-year deals. So they're going to be there. They're guaranteed to be there. And that definitely helps. Um, in terms of like the five in a row, six in a row thing, the only thing I can see getting in the way of that is that Rovers have quite an old squad at the minute. Like it helps because there are loads of experience there and it's not as if they're they're over the hill completely, but in the next two to three years, you're probably looking at refreshing that a little yeah, bit absolutely. and building a base. But they they still do have those younger players coming through that have experience, but are also got like four or five, six, seven years still left in the tank. The likes of Neil Ferrugia, for example, is like probably the best player in the league right now. Yeah, I mean, how long can they hold on to him? That's the thing. Well, you it? see, it's it's just about whether or not he stays in yeah. Ireland. I don't. I think that's the key that's part with yeah, Rovers is that like. There's the only question for when whether a, cl- a player is going to leave Rovers is if he's going to England. Yeah. It's not a question of where both have a great player. Okay, is he going to going to go to Rovers next year? Is he going to go to the same Pats next year? Rovers don't really have that. There's nobody really poaching their players because of the contract situation. So I think uh, they've been the smartest club. They deserve the success they've had. Stephen Bradley's done an excellent job. Plays great football. It's just about whether somebody can challenge them because I think this year. There's been enough openings for clubs to take advantage of what Rovers, of summer Rovers form over the course of the season, and it just hasn't been there. Maybe if John Daly had taken over Pats, maybe a couple of weeks before that, it might have been a little bit closer. But yeah, I think until Bowes have that I structure. Think, I think or, that cleverness is what you said goes back to the likes of the members' club originally when they, they took over the club and it got to 2012, 20, 2011, 2012, and they realized, say, when Michael left. So when Michael left, he just won two in a row. He got to the group stages of the uh, Europa League. It wasn't, obviously, uh, Stephen's team gets to the Conference League. And they're both great achievements. But then what happens is Michael leaves, and within a year it's gone, where they're struggling. And they struggle for the next while. And I had conversations in 2012 with Jonathan Roach about, why are we training in the AUL? Why don't we have a Southside base? And I would have annoyed him a little bit. And he would have told me where to go, and we, we probably still have that relationship. But I think I think Jonathan's Jonathan Roach's vision with Noel Bourne at the time was, let's try and get something that lasts, that you have a base here. So when I played in 2012, they had the, the east and the west and now they have the south and the north. So it's been built as well. It has to be, what, 10,000 yeah. or something, wasn't it? Yeah. And then you go, well, the fact that they were, they, like, I, and I touched on this as well, that, they sold 25% of their stake, the member stake, they sold it for, for I think it might have been 1 million or 2 million at the time to build Roadstone. So they're willing to... So the investment, as you were saying, was was, was pushed straight back into the was club. Was pushed straight back into the club, exactly. So it's there, it's pushed straight back into the club and the members need to take a lot of credit for that because it was led by the members to go, look, we're, we're going to sell what we think is valuable assets, which is 25% stake of the club and reinvest it into the club. So that there's a structure there and then there's a platform there for the young players to come through. And Jordan, that first time, Gavin Bazuna comes through. So Gavin comes through as an academy player, goes into go works under Shane Robinson for a good few years, then goes on to, to Stephen Bradley and the, the, the lineage was great. And then he goes and makes the club X amount of money. And then people go, oh, well, that's a good investment. 
And then we get outside investment from Enda's mate, Dermot Desmond, comes over. And he, <laughs> you mate, Enda? Yeah, he <laughs> He's a propagandist for sale. <laughs> so uh, he, he then comes and goes, well, I want to invest. But when people say invest is they, they buy shares in the club. They don't, they don't invest every year. So the, the, it's still the members selling their shares to fund the club. And Yeah, so it's not a constant pouring of money correct. into the club. So, yeah, and, yeah. And, and that's not me being... People think, oh, you're coming on to defend. That's the truth of it is they're not putting in money every year. It's still run through the members and still a lot of it is done through the volunteers and members still. So the members would have invested nearly five million in the club in the last 10 years through putting in money every week, their hours, and the fact that the, they sold assets, which was shares in the club for to reinvest back into the academy so now we have an astro pitch that has floodlights we have a force team or we have a training grass pitch that has floodlights we have a seven aside pitch that has floodlights we have an indoor hall with astro on it and we have an indoor gym and that's all been built through investments by the members club and when you when you realize that and you go when Enda said it's been a clever it was it wasn't methodical as in because no football club is because there's stuff that happens moving parts but it has been a plan that was put in to go this is where you want to get to and and that's that's what's happened when you say I'm, I'm delighted you just said look they've been clever and that's what's happened with it but this myth that I think a lot of your Bose friends would, <laughs> would throw out is that oh we have millionaire investors no we, your club's going to be worth something in a few years and somebody's going to want to come in and, and buy that and you have to decide whether you take that money to reinvest into the club or not and if you say no we're happy to just be 100% fan owned that's your decision I think they're happy to be 100% owned because they have an investment called Evan Ferguson out there yeah <laughs> they're just winning on that that's hopefully what winning to cash the chips in but um, yeah I, th I think in the League of Ireland especially over the last couple of years the most stable club is the most successful club of course Look at Dun Dundalk. People thought that was always going to continue on just because of European football. And then it just falls apart because there's no real underlying structure in place. They're just relying on that success in the league. Rovers really aren't. If Rovers didn't win the league this year, they're not completely out of it. They wouldn't fall down the table. All the players wouldn't leave. They'd be back in the hunt the following year. I think that's yeah. probably what and, is And the also, if the, if the club ever hit financial issues at the top end, you have a group of... 19-year-olds, 17-year-olds and 15-year-olds ready to play where when the last time the club, Andrade was the same, when the club went, because there's nothing underneath it, your whole club can nearly go mm. with one team. Do you look yeah. at Cork? Yeah. Cork. Your club can go with one team and that's where I think the academy system deserves a lot more credit at the moment. It, it needs help. You can get on to that as well. The academies in this country need investment, need massive investment. But it stops clubs ever getting to the point where they just don't exist anymore. Like you're talking about the, the era I played in. There's teams in that era that don't exist anymore. Yeah, and They just fold. And and that, that's where I think that's what the academy structures have brought. That if Bowes ever struggled or if Rovers ever struggled, there's 17 and 19 year olds only dying to play for them. And, and of good quality as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah. that's where I think that the, the academy does deserve, the academies from around the country do deserve a lot of credit as well. Like, you know. But they need help. They definitely yeah. do. They need investment. And I mean, that's another conversation that we could do for hours. Um, so right, we're going to move on to other football and matters now. Uh, Graham, I suppose we'll start off tonight. Champions League football starts off tonight. And it's uh, 
the uh, trailblazers of English football, Manchester United, <laughs> are home to Copenhagen. Um, I suppose United have had, what, three wins in a row, which is unheard of recently, um, but they've been all struggling kind of wins. Um, there's all the talk, all the noise from outside the club. The Radcliffe's going to buy 25% of the club. He's going to look after the sporting project. Um, uh, Ten Hag, uh, there's rumours that Radcliffe might replace Ten Hag. Just your, your, your feelings on Manchester United as they are at the moment, Graham. I thought he'd, I thought Ten Hag done really well last year, um, considering I think it's a mess from all around at the moment. Looking in, I don't have a lot of uh, people that I'd know around Manchester that would have any in, great insight to it. But it's only looking in from observations and working and being in football for the last uh, twenty twenty odd years, twenty five. Um, I think when you when there's uneasiness at any club, it, it trickles down. It always does. Um, I think with the way it's been run and the structures, I think the signings haven't been great. I don't think they've signed really well. I heard a different conversation where, you know, you don't really improve players, but when you go to them, your career struggles as well. But then when you move on from United, you're not exactly lighting her up neither. Like, so it's it's like it's nearly... It kills your whole you, career. Yeah, <laughs> you stagnate to a point where you can't really re-rescue it. Um I didn't see the Mason Mount one. I didn't see that sign. And, and I think when you play Casemiro with uh, Bruno Fernandes and Mount either side of him, I think it's exposing him. I mm-hmm. think if you're going to play with one of them, you need to play with two, maybe two sitters and get more control of the game and then trust that you have enough firepower in Fernandes, Rashford um, and the forward players. Hoyland, is this that? Hoyland, yeah, yeah. yeah. But I, I just think... It's easy when you give a player and when you give player a group of players an out, as in this structure isn't great, they'll take it. Right, and, and that happens in football clubs. Or something else isn't right. Oh well, that's on news then. And and I think you know you'd have that at the moment where they're all looking to go well. There's almost an excuse culture. Correct. And then yeah. what happens is that excuse culture gives players an out, and and they'll and they're more than happy to take it when 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 it gets tough. And I think that's I think that's what's happening at United looking in. Well, and there's two games now coming up against Copenhagen. And they have they must wins, aren't they? If they want to continue in the Champions League, yeah, they need to win tonight. Essentially, like it, it shows you how bad things are getting when a club like United are bottom of a group that has Copenhagen and Galatasaray in it. Like you know, that should have been a given. And under Alex Ferguson, it would have been a given. Um, I think it, like the structure is such a mess that it's almost hard to give ter- Ten Hag too much. Stick, but I think he still deserves a little bit as well. Like, if you look at what he's brought to the club, I mean, Solskjaer was playing, was like lauded for really good results, but he was also given no credit at all for bringing forward the club in terms of what he did and the style of play, playing counter attacking football, he was criticized heavily for. Eric Ten Hag's come in and he said, Oh, we're going to be the best transitional team in Europe. That's counterattacking football. Yeah. It's the same thing. He's doing the exact same thing, and it's it, it's because the players that he has are suited to that. But the players that he has aren't good enough, and the players that he's brought to the club aren't good enough. But that all comes back to the structure in place because all the signings that Ten Hag has brought to the club have been Ten Hag's signings. They've been 
uh, Hoyland, who he knew, Anthony, who he worked with, Onana, Onana, who he knew. Like all these players are connected Martin to Ten Hag yeah, in yeah. some way, or shape, or form. So that tells me there's no scouting network in place at United that's worth any uh, any any bit of salt. And Ten Hag is just bringing in people that he trusts that will do a job for him, and that's just not how you can operate at that high level at, at all. Level, yeah. Not a not a Manchester United. Yeah. Like if you look at Man City, they they've got more staff than every other club. In England for a reason. It's because they've got expertise all over the place and, and it's showing on the pitch now. So And the one thing about City as well, what I'm saying in terms of that transfer business, um, like obviously they have those, you know, they're 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 cash rich, oil rich, whatever. But they still don't pay over the odds, I don't think, for players. Like if they if you know, like if, like Maybe Grealish, I would have thought at the maybe, time. Yeah, at yeah, the time he was a hundred million, but yeah, yeah like it, as the Engl- it's the English tax on him, wasn't isn't it? Just, yeah. But then you get Haaland for fifty, like that's <laughs> where you go. Well, you've done well there, look. You know, yeah. they, they they tend to walk away if, if if they go. They have an idea of what the price they should pay for the player, and if that club asks for more, they just walk away. And it's, it's I think the willingness to the move business. on players is that stood out in the last couple of years. You when know, you think what they've lost in the last yeah, couple of years, you go, look, good luck. United can't get rid of their players. Yeah. <laughs> like they, they should have got rid of McTominay, whether McTominay's doing a good job this year or not. Should have got rid of Maguire, couldn't get rid of him, couldn't get him out the door. Man, the match was hard. Like they've got all this, all these players on huge contracts. That's one of the reasons that they can't get rid of them. So it's, it is a disaster. It's a soap opera. And you're almost wishing that they'd just stick a camera in Old Trafford and get be done with it make it a reality TV show and just forget about the football because that's what the owners want they just want the club to be in the public eye as much as possible and just bleed the club dry that's essentially what they're doing I suppose while, while we're talking uh, about Manchester you know, it'd be remiss of us uh, not to mention the, the passing of uh, Sir Bobby Charlton yeah. um, I think a name just synonymous with football across the world I don't care what people's allegiances are when they when they thought of Bobby Charlton they thought about football and uh, it just your 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 thoughts on Bobby yeah. Chan? I've been talking about him a little bit this morning to other people and smiling and and I remember you the World Cup Panini book where he had the greatest goals. Remember in nineteen ninety, and then his was in it in sixty six where he goes on the dribble and bangs in the top corner. Oh, Mexico, Mexico, yeah. yeah, yeah. And then you're going to your dad like, who's he? And then he's going, I'll wait and I show you. And my dad was a Leeds fan. Um, but he used all his friends were United fans, so he used to have to go over to the United games because they were all gone. So he was like, "I'm gone," and he was like, he was raving about Bobby Charlton. And then we loved George best, but he said, "But he says he's never seen a ball hit as well as as Bobby Charlton hit one." I was talking about it today where they show clips of him playing. You know, somebody's really two footed when they're willing to play with the outside of the boot off both feet. Right, you know that. Yeah. You ever, and have you ever really look at somebody who's two footed? Okay. You realize. Lubo Maracic done it, but that willingness that I'm going to play off the outside of me foot around the corner with with either foot, that's a really tough thing to do in the in 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 the heat of a game because you'll normally just play well. It's on my left side and I'm left footed. I'm going to go for me to go across that and play with my right foot, and but and they, they show clips of him jinking and moving the ball with the yeah. outside of each foot, and that means he's bringing somebody close so he can do it. And then you're like the power he had, even in his running power and the gliding and. The sorry, the, the 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 one that chokes you up is the clip when Jack comes out and says, "Look, he's he's the greatest player I've ever seen, and he, and he's and he's my brother." And he called him our kid. Yeah, yeah. And he's my brother, and that that just chokes you up that you realise like he's probably watched them all the way through him, and and he said the story he tells. You ever hear the story Jack tells about when he gets called up to play for England? Yes, he was at Old Trafford. Yeah. 
he's just beaten Man United at Old Trafford. <laughs> and he's got called up and he walks straight into the United dressing room and he goes to Bobby, I've just been called up for England. And he goes, that's great, Jack, but he's just beat us here. You need to go to the dressing room. <laughs> <laughs> and you're like, like that thing of shared and that's something with yeah. your brother. Like yeah. that, that would have been unbelievable. Like and, and again, I think he's the greatest English player of all time. I think he... Yeah, I mean, when you think what he's gone through, when you think of his life, and we were having a little chat earlier on, like, you know, coming from the Munich one. Yeah, it's it's crazy. Like, I mean, to do what he'd done in general was impressive to do what he what he did in his career, having gone through the Munich air disaster. Like, I mean, there's there's some harrowing tales of him pulling his teammates out of the, the plane. It, like, it, it, it seemed to affect him to begin with, but then to rebuild Manchester United with... Uh, Matt Busby and then go on to win the European Cup win the World Cup be the top goal scorer for United for so long England's top goal scorer and I think the the credit to him goes that we talk about him as Bobby Charlton the footballer and not Bobby Charlton the guy who survived the Munich air disaster like nobody that like unless somebody mentioned that to you you don't really think of that to begin with with Bobby Charlton you just think about how good he is Yeah. and uh, like one of the things that I was saying to you is that when you watch old clips of football from the 50s you're like ah oh, it was a different game. Like, you know, yeah. there, you see the way boys are kicking the ball and running. Bobby Charlton yeah. looked like a that's, modern footballer. That's a great show. He actually, kicked yeah. the ball. He could fit in any he, era. He, he could fit in any era because he, he he had the same running gait as modern footballers. He kicked the ball much harder than everyone else. Like, he was absolutely Not forget wa- those balls were different. Yeah, yeah exactly. Big, big leather balls <laughs> filled with water. Like, And he was battering them into the top corner. Yeah. Like, I, I'd love to have seen, like, if you put... Like sort of yeah. took him a video and put him put him into modern football. I think he'd still probably would have been one of those footballers that would have just transcended the the era that he was playing. And he was just just phenomenal. I agree, and, I agree with the movement thing. You, you see old videos and the lads chopping and and you go, oh, and then he's just doing everything in motion. Yeah, and it's a flow to him. And then the power kicks in where you're like, oh my god, look and the strikes. So. Uh, so we just have a look back at the, the, the Premier League over the weekend Arsenal came back from the debt to draw with Chelsea having gone 2-0 down uh, both keepers I suppose had a nightmare uh, Raya and Sanchez and obviously there's this uh, debate going on at Arsenal raging debate going on Ramsdale or uh, or, or uh, um, like Graham from your experience in football um, do you think for the squad it's important that the goalkeeper of all positions the goalkeeper knows he's the number one or is it healthy, as, as as Arteta is thrown out there, that it's healthy to have competition? But is that leaving a little bit of doubt in the keeper's mind? Or what? I, I think it's healthy to have competition as long as the the people that are in the competition are mentally secure enough to know that we're gonna have to, I'm going to have to fight for my place. And, and, and that has to be on them. I, I do feel you need trust from your manager. I think someone like myself, I wasn't a goalkeeper, but... I played best when I knew the manager trusted me that even if I did make a mistake, he was he knew you were gonna react in the right way for me. Uh, but I, I don't get this thing where they can't there can't be competition for spots as well, where goalkeepers have to be secure in their like you're secure in your performances. That's what keeps you number one. How you perform. I seen the goal that he concedes. Ray is always the reason he brought him in was to take more crosses and deal with crosses into the box. And he's on. He's always on the front foot, ready to go, and and he just gets caught out. Like it's a miss here. Like yeah. it happens. Happened to David <laughs> Seaman when he was at Arsenal. Happened to him against Ronaldinho. Ronaldinho the happened to him against yeah. ne- uh, the boy from the halfway line net. I think his name is Neymar as well, was it? Oh, Naeem. Naeem, yeah, the sports lad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it can happen. Like, but I I don't agree with this thing of 
well, I need to know I'm number one. You you become you become that you get that need when you perform, and then you go right there. You go, like I, I even at Drogheda, I played. I Stephen Gray was the left sided centre back when I came in, and he was in the team of the year, the year I signed, and then eventually. Now I'm I'd be really good friends with Gray's to this day, but it was a competition. Like and he, like I knew if I don't perform in consistent games here, he's gonna take me spot, and and that's the way it goes. And then even at at St. Johnson, I dislocated my shoulder up in Aberdeen and I came back and I ended up playing way too early on it. And the manager just pushed me, I need you, I need you. And I'm getting injections into my shoulder and playing, I think five weeks after I popped my AC joint, which is, should have been a three-month job. Mm. And I'm going and going and then Michael Dewberry walks in the door. Michael Dewberry? Yeah, so he signs and he takes me spot because, <laughs> but the manager was keeping me going because we'd no one else and then my spot's gone and I'm thinking I've just I've just played through yeah unbelievable pain, pain. <laughs> well that's that's one thing that I do question about this situation is that like I, I know obviously Arteta is a good manager that's not what I'm saying when I say this but I do get a whiff of bullshitter off him a little bit like in some of the things that he says and the way that he, he spoke about like how the goalkeeping position is is the exact same as an outfield position if one player's not playing well the other other player will be in but I suppose the real first test of that was okay when it comes to the big games who's going who's it going to be Ramsdale or Raya and Raya got the shout and now the next test of this is going to be okay Raya's had a bad game now is Ramsdale going to be substituted in in the same way as an outfield player would or were you bullshitting him because I think that does a lot between the trust of the manager that like kind of like what you're saying there is that when push came to shove you were actually put to the side and this other player was brought in so it's like what does that do for the relationship between Ramsdale and Arteta? Yeah, yeah that's a that's a great point. And like you said, it's that thing of like you've you've said all this. I, I agree with you. With Arteta's trying to appease everybody. He's trying to appease both players and the press at the time mm. who are constantly asking him about it. And he's and he comes out with this thing where you're like, yeah. But the the proof is in the pudding. Is mm. that if he deems Ray as mistake enough to drop him, will he stand over dropping him? Yeah. And and, and I don't look. I think his pass out isn't great. I think obviously the cross doesn't, but he's brought in. He's brought in to play. He's brought in for them two reasons: is that he's better with he's better with the ball at his feet, and he's better on crosses. Yeah. So he's brought him in for that. So if they if them two things start letting him down, then he has to stand over not playing him. But I don't think he. I don't think he was that bad. I don't no, think after one, after one game, and that's the, correct. That's what makes it so hard yeah, as well. Is I that okay? So he said this about Ramsdale. But if he drops Raya after one bad game, what does that say to Raya? It's like, oh, like you like surely we, not, you don't have any confidence then as a goalkeeper. Like. We'd look, we even like different things pop up when you're talking and remind you. Like Dan Connor was their goalkeeper at, at Drogheda, and uh, Paul Dillon had gone all out to bring him in from Waterford. Brilliant goalkeeper. Don't realise how good he was. He, he came back and played in that charity game, and he was a joke. And then still, still, oh, yeah, he was just <laughs> smacking the ball all over the shop. I was like, "Do you want me to take it?" Nah, you're all right. <laughs> <laughs> more accurate than me. I was like, "Great ball!" And just running off, thinking I wouldn't have been able to hit that. <laughs> and uh, but we had Gary Rogers had been at Drogheda, and Gary Rogers goes on to have a great career in League mm-hmm. of Ireland. But Dan at the time was better than him, and Dan got suspended for three games. And when the suspension was up, Gary hadn't conceded a goal in the three games. We kept three clean sheets. Played in front of a good back forward at the time. But he, <laughs> we, 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 like, but we're going, what Like, what does he do? 
He just put Dan straight back in. Mm. Yeah. He's like, he's my keeper. Like. Yeah. He's my number one. He's my number one. Yeah. And Gary left the following year, I think, or a year after. But he was like, no, Dan's my number one. Now, Dan ended up getting a really bad hip injury. Where I'm thinking, geez, we could do with guys back now. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but it was, that was Paul's thing of, he's my number one. Yeah. Like, maybe it's just my personality, but I prefer someone who's just up front of me and, you know, like, treat me like an adult. Like, you know, if, if, I think and I feel like Ramsdale. I don't know him obviously, but I feel like that's his personality as well. Is that if he said to Ramsdale, "Look, I'm bringing Ryan. He's going to be my first choice because he is. He shows attributes. But if you improve, you'll be my number one, and I'll trust you. As a, but you're going to have to prove it to me now. Whereas, like, I just think the nonsense. Coach, of, coaching's tough like that. I know. Yeah, I know it's not always as yeah because you have to like you're gonna they're gonna need him at some stage. They're going to need Ramsdale at some stage. And if you're that up front from him and he goes, right, I'm going, mm-hmm. and you call in someone else that costs you, yeah. you're going to go, you're going to get asked the question, why didn't you tip him along? Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It I, is. Like, I agree with you, though, with, but when you say, but it wasn't that much of a calamitous, there weren't calamitous mistakes oh. on it on Sunday. I mean, even, I mean, I think a lot of credit has to go to Declan Rice. That was some finish. That's a great yeah. finish. It was an absolutely brilliant that finish. That was the four shot and target in the game. Yeah, That's how yeah. bored he were. Yeah. But it sparked them, didn't it? It, it did, gave yeah. them a, oh, and that shows you where Arsenal are at at the moment. I suppose they have that resilience about them, don't they? they, they you know, they've been touted as the closest challengers to City. They go two 0 down in a, in, a, in a London derby against a, a revived Chelsea, and yet you know they still come back and still get the draw. Just expecting Canu to come on, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you remember that goal? <laughs> yeah, oh, yes. But like, yeah, yeah. Like in that, but like you said, that thing of maybe three or four years ago, Arsenal don't come back in that yeah. game. Roy sparks them with the goal it's a mistake but then they think right we're going to get one here um, it does feel that there's so much on it at the moment because of the the pace that City have set over the last few years and, and throw Liverpool into that the year they won it as well but like the year Liverpool have gone toe-to-toe Man City in two title races and the following year they literally fell off a cliff because to stay with them it's just so tough and Arsenal doing it last year they just couldn't see it out but it's just they're just uh, relentless. They are, like you know. They are, and they 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 won. They beat they beat Brighton um, at the weekend. A fairly comfortable win in the end. Uh, end. Uh, um, your thoughts on on City and where they're at? They had a little bit of a blip there the last couple of weeks. Yeah, I think you can put a nice little bit of correlation between Rodri coming back and City looking very very ah, comfortable right. again. Yeah, of um, yeah. I mean. City are better than Brighton. It's it's it was a bigger game because of what Deserby is doing with with Brighton at the minute. But as soon as City got the goal, and then Holland, you know, you give him that amount of space, he's going to finish it. Like it, City are never lo- losing from a winning position. I think that's the the difference. And Brighton just look a little bit vulnerable at times when they try to take on these bigger teams. Like they sometimes it works out for them, like against Man United because Man United are a shambles, but. <laughs> You try to go to toe to two with uh, Man City and they take the, an early lead. That's that's game over from from there on. Really, it's hard because I I I watched West Ham the week before against Brighton and when and then they played Man United the week a couple of weeks later, and I said United should do what West Ham done to them, but United's ego and United's stature as a football club mm. wouldn't allow them to go. Just sit in. We're going to let you have the ball. It was probably the right way because then West Ham only have like twenty percent possession or something. One three nil. Yeah, and all of a sudden. The smaller teams are looking going maybe not the smaller teams as in the teams that aren't at the level of Brighton at the moment. West Ham are as big a club as Brighton. Don't get me wrong, but they're looking going well. How you get a result against Brighton is maybe this way. Now City 
will never play like that against them because they've their own ego and they've their own manager that has their way. Liverpool are similar. Arsenal are the same. Well, you know you aren't in that <laughs> no. bracket. No, not anymore. Like Spurs are going to them. No. I like Spurs. Spurs yeah. are going to or anyone now. And, and that's, again... His mate Ange. We've we've waxed lyrical about sports over the last few podcasts. This is a sports free zone. It's getting me to stop talking about them. (laughs) But that thing of we're going to play, like, and Brighton have it. Brighton will go, look, we're not in your bracket at the moment, City, but we're going to go toe to toe with you because Mm -hmm. I I need my players to believe that they can do it. Because if I can get them to believe that they're going to go toe to toe with you, they'll batter everyone else. And sometimes, as you're an up and coming team, you need that. Like support because the man now they're looking at the manager going actually he really trusts in what we're doing here because he's willing to try against Man City. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. There's a faith in the philosophy yeah. there, yeah, for sure. Um, I suppose um, if looking at other results, uh, we have to doff our cap once again to uh, Emery at Villa and the job he's done there. What is it, twelve uh, home wins in a row? Uh, the last team to beat them was Arsenal in, back in February. Um, and they're not just beating teams, they're hammering teams mm. at, at Villa Park. And Watkins just looks sensational. Uh, Diaby's been an incredible signing. Um, and uh, Aston Villa, Emery. I love it, you know, Emery. I think he's class because he got a lot of stick at Arsenal. Yeah. And he was sort of. I think I would, so, I would, I would describe Unai Emery's reign at Arsenal similar to now if. Eric Ten Hag's in charge when Radcliffe takes over and there's going to be loads of structural change. Arsenal was going to undergo that structural change during Emery's reign. And he did fine. He didn't do great, but he did all right. And I guess that led to people underrating him as a manager. But he's a no-nonsense football man who knows a lot about football and structures and getting things in the right place. And after Steven Gerrard at Aston Villa, it was only there was only one way, and that was going to be up. And he just got the whole place together, got the players going again. And since he took over last November, they've had the most amount of points outside of Man City and Arsenal. So, like, hard, isn't that's, 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 how, that's how good they that's are. It's not, it's, it's not just... Uh, <laughs> doing my research before the show, you know. Uh, but, yeah, no, there's just a really good side. Like, that's... They, they do, again, it's sort of like the Brighton thing where they do have their weaknesses against certain styles of play, but against most of the teams in the league, they're just better. And yeah. they're they're more organised. They've got good players. They've got confidence. They've got a goal scorer in Ollie Watkins. And, I mean, if you got three out of the four of the, those things, you're probably going to do okay. Though, isn't it? Like, yeah. it's, like, you touch on it. I remember someone saying it to us years ago. You're only as good as your strikers. Like, you're only as good because you can have all... You can have the best footballers in the world. If you don't score goals... Yeah, you can have the best defense in the world if you don't score goals. Okay, win matches. Then, well, look you know. at look at Brighton under Graham Potter. Yeah, you know they didn't have a the striker. They tried tried three or four different men, and then Deserby comes in and inherits Evan well, Ferguson. Potter been linked with even the Ireland job. I yeah. think he's actually been linked with the United job. I've heard that recently because since Radcliffe has come in, yeah, apparently yeah. that's the whisper. Yeah. yeah, I don't I don't know. It's it's hard to know what Potter. Sometimes international football sort of the graveyard shift um, for management, but. I think it'd be a great appointment for Ireland if you were just, to I just see them all linking you know? other people, and I just never see his name. And you're like, he's he's not in work. No, yeah, and he's like you never see it. And and they talk about playing good football as well, but like football, like that you can get behind. And but it's, like you said, it's that front foot football. That's what Ireland want to see. But I just I never see his name linked with it. I'm thinking, well, obviously he's still on the, the payroll at Chelsea, probably. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, for the next six years. Yeah, or something. yeah. yeah. <laughs> but um, uh, I suppose looking at the Premier League at the weekend, uh, one of the great uh, 
I suppose we have to cling on to every little bit of hope we can as Irish fans is uh, Shadozio Benny. Um, you know, he's now starting for Luton. He came into the, you know, he went on a free transfer from Rotherham to Luton. Uh, Luton were snapping up all these bargains. They got out Benny. He, was, he started the first few games on the bench, but very quickly he's become a real favourite at Kenilworth Road. And he was excellent against Forrest at the weekend. Yeah. A constant threat. Bring it, putting in balls, uh, beautiful, dangerous balls into the box. Like there is an end product to his game as well. Now, end, I think he's developed that, uh, and his goal was outrageous, like yeah, like an outrageous nice. volley, like just straight into the top corner. Um, it, it, you know, it's he, he looks like a player who could. He looks like a player who's continuously improving, and uh, and and in that environment as well, and possibly could move on to bigger and better things. Yeah, well, hopefully he stays fit during the season uh, first off and then hopefully stays in the team because if, I think if he stays in the Luton team throughout the season and I expect Luton to go back down they might they might be one of these ones that cling on for, for dear hope like Forrest did last year but I would I would expect Ogbeni to get a move to another Premier League club next year because he, he is really dangerous he's a really dangerous player who has pace he has power he has intelligence as well in his runs and he's shown at international level as well it's not just Okay, he was a good championship player, but what can he do? Like he he tore Portugal apart when he was playing. Every time he plays for Ireland against the bigger sides, well, even against the defenders Holland, can't handle. Daily Blind was taken out at halftime. Yeah, because of, of Benny in the first half, and he's positive, and he's you know he's a good lad to have around the dressing room as well. You can't really complain anything about his personality. So I don't see any other reason why Ogbeni can't just continue moving forward with his career here. Yeah, your impressions on Ogbeni? I th- I think you touched on one. You had a little comment when you're describing him is that he's learning, and you can see he's learning at at the level. So he, he he's he working out how to get crosses in against different defenders. He's he's learning at the are at the highest level now, and he's learning quick. And yeah. that that's the sign of a really good player for me is that yeah, he has pace, power, and and all that stuff that goes with it. But he's learning how to use it against different oppositions. He's a goal threat. He's he's a threat where for obviously creative threat that he's putting in decent crosses as well so when you have when when you're looking at the stats as a as somebody who might be a, an analyst an analyst is looking at it from a scouting point of view they're going to say well what does he guarantee well he guarantees at least six crosses a game you know, his ex goal might be you know one out of that or two but that's good enough at that level that they go right he, he's somebody that can perform here and end the touched on it he's continually getting better and that's the bit, it's the improvements from where he's mm-hmm. come from. That they go, he was playing for Limerick, Cork, and every level he's gone up, uh, he's able to match it. And then the longer he plays at that level, the better he gets. And that's a good thing. And that just shows you that he, he's, a, he's a very clever and astute footballer and that he's, he's understanding his environment. Must be, you, you come from a, a, now working in a, as a coach, uh, Graham, must be a, an absolute dream for any coach, for a player who just wants to learn. Wants to improve. Yeah, they, t- they take information in, and you're not having to say it three or four times. It's like, look, you show them, show them once. They understand it. They understand what you're trying to, um, why it's achievable and how it's achievable, and then what the outcomes of that on the pitch would be if if it comes off. And then it's like you can't, as a defender, I nearly flip it. Go, look, I can't stop everything, but I can. If you go here or here or here, I can minimize it. Minimize it. But you need to work out that. Well, if I can't stop everything, how can I active? How do I say it when I'm a striker? Like, how do I cause damage? How do I inflict damage on you where where you don't want me to be? And and I think as a as a coach, when you're teaching them players that that they understand that this is um, how I maximise the threat for 
not only myself but for the team and I think he, he, he's a very clever footballer he really is uh, Tadozi Agbani we're right behind you Tadozi um, uh, continued success to him and uh, any any other Irish player in the Premier League I mean looking at, it's just looking at Irish players in the Premier League this season uh, and uh, uh, Josh Josh Cullen is still still playing with Burnley, Burnley are struggling, yeah. um, and he is—you know—he's the. I suppose he's 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 our central midfielder for the national team as well. Um, just just your opinions on Josh Cullen um, and what what seasons having with Burnley and what he contributes to the Irish team. I think it's difficult for him in the Premier League because of the way the Burnley play. They haven't changed. Company's not going to change, and there's it's starting to turn a little bit there. So I would be a little bit worried about Josh Cullen. In the next couple of months, if company does depart, because he is he's a Josh he's a he's a Vincent Company player. In terms of the Irish Irish side, I think it's he's a, almost a victim of the makeup of the rest of the Irish midfielders as well, because he probably is the most tidy, the most comfortable on the ball, the safest passer, and things like that. But he doesn't have that creative spark beside him. So I think a lot of the time, you're relying on him to move the ball forward, progress the ball forward, and he goes backwards, and that can be quite frustrating for um, for that, Irish fans. That's what he does at Borley, isn't it? That's what he does really well. Yeah. And I was actually, I just started Liam Brady's book, and he the first chapter is talking about his debut against uh, the USSR. John Giles threw him in as an 18-year-old, and Giles, he was playing beside him, he was the player manager at the time, and Liam Brady was talking about how every time he got the ball, John Giles was there for the pass. There was somebody beside him... Um, you know, and and Jazzy and his and his forward of the book is talking about that as well. How every time Jazz got the ball, Brady was in a good position and well shaped to to take the ball. I don't think Josh Cullen has that beside him at the minute. And um, with Jason Malumbi, who's a good active player, gets himself around, but he's not that controlling number eight. And that's probably what Ireland are missing. And that's probably why Josh Cullen doesn't look as good for Ireland as he maybe did for Burnley last year in the championship. Um, just suppose we, 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 we're coming towards the end of the podcast. Uh, Graham, obviously Already? you... Yes, yeah. I know. Time flies when you're having oh, fun. Yeah, yeah. Um, we'll tell you, uh, you obviously, um, like Stephen, Stephen, Stephen has come in and was manager and um, like a lot of us, like especially I suppose League of Ireland people, we were, we were really, really yeah. hoping. And you've obviously worked with Stephen. Uh-huh, he he yeah. signed you for Shamrock Rovers. Um, your, your impressions on Stephen Kenny as a manager and as a man and the job he's done at Ireland... Yeah, you separate the two a little bit because as a man, I have a lot of time for Stephen. I think he's he's one of the most sincere people you meet in the game. He wants the betterment of of everyone that he comes in contact with. I think I think there's a genuineness to Stephen. Uh, um, and like I said, I wouldn't have a bad word to say about him. Like, I remember a reporter rang me about five years ago and asked me to do a, like an anonymous story on our year at Rovers, and I was like, no, like. And I was like, I'm not gonna. Ha- I was in. I was that was a difficult year for Rovers, wasn't it? Yeah, it was an awful year. Yeah. And and but I was like, I said no. Like I, I, I know it was like I was in coaching. It's tough. And I was like, I'm not gonna slaughter a guy that's he was about to take over the earning job. And how bad did it go, at Rovers? And I was like, it's not me. It's not for me to do that. And I was and I and coaching and managing is really really difficult. It's a very difficult job. And I remember just being a bit like, not doing that. I wouldn't do that to anybody. Um, as a manager of the Ireland squad, uh, and I'm being analytical here as in looking at it, we're too easy to play against. We're too easy to play against with and without the ball. When we have the ball, when we don't hurt teams enough. We're not as forward thinking enough, not as dynamic enough as we should be. And against us, we give away too many goals. We've conceded 30 goals in something like 27 games. It was too easy to play against Wintmore out the ball. 
and there's a happy balance that you need to get. There's times in games where you need to suffer, and you're going to suffer against better teams. This similar to what happens with United. There's an ego thing where you think we need to dominate this game. We're Ireland. We need to dominate. Well, we're not that country. Yeah. So there's going to be times you suffer, but it's having a structure of that yeah. suffering of like we're going to be a counter attack team for the next 15 minutes. And you touch on different things, and I can, I talk to you, and I don't sit with notes or anything like that. It'll come back to me. You have come from different conversations. Pep Guardiola done an interview about four years ago and says I want to be the best possession team in, in the world. He says, but I also want to be the best counter-attacking team in the world. I also want to be the best defensive team in the world. <laughs> and it's that thing of, yeah, we want to play football, but football, we're a purpose. And I think we're too open with the ball, but we're out having enough of a threat then. Mm. If we're going to be that open, we need to be more threatening. So we don't have that. Then we don't tighten up quick enough. When teams do have the ball, we're, we nearly get the hump and go, how are you having the ball for long? Am, am, I, am I going to jump and do something silly? Because we get frustrated. So I think the dynamics of it is completely... It's not there. How we get that identity back is that I think we should play front foot football. I think we should look to play forward as early as we can. Now, forward isn't straight into a striker with a long ball. I'm not. I'm talking about we win it back and we're gonna we're gonna have the tempo of the game really really high. We're gonna try and get the ball back as quick as we can. But if we don't, we're gonna get into a shape that allows us to be secure. And then we're gonna set a way of going. And I'm sure they they plan all this, but that identity of like the players that we go before, people talk about even the Roy Keane thing of uh, Roy, Roy Keane passed the ball forward every time he every got it, time. as much mm-hmm. as he could. And he'd get annoyed if he didn't. And he'd be annoyed at someone else because he didn't show for it, so allowed him to pass forward. And they talk about he's Dennis Irwin, another one that I think goes on. What's the DNA of an Irish footballer? You look at someone like Dennis Irwin, multiple trophy winner, humble, willing to play different positions, played forward, scored loads of goals, set pieces, attacking wise. Defensively good 1v1. That structure, and I'm, I'm not looking back here with, with rose tinted glasses, but that thing of being a forward-thinking player but still having a mind of going, well, we're, we're going to be secure in what we're mm. doing as well. And I just think we look, we look like we don't have an identity now. We don't look like we're good defensively. We don't look like we're good attacking-wise. And I think if you, if you can fix that and go, Every team in the world is going to come up against another good team that's going to make you suffer for 15 minutes and suffer together and get through it. And the crowd will back you because they go, oh, this is getting tough, let's go. Mm-hmm. Oh, we got a breakaway. Oh, the atmosphere changes in the game. Momentum changes because we, we've done something. But stay in the games. And I think we've been out too many games too early because yeah. of that. Every time we're defending transition, it looks like the team are going to score. Like yeah. If Ireland lose, it's like the we're ball. scrambling all the time. It, it does. It, it yeah. looks like we're scrambling back into position, and every time they just it seems to be two passes and you have a shot on goal, and that's how you get through Ireland, especially the good teams. And that's like we never look like scoring, and teams always look like scoring against us, and that's never a good sign. Yeah, I, I think Stephen Kenny is like um, I, I, as you, I just echo what Graham said, a good man and a really good coach. Um, and I'm no doubt that um, even if his tenure does end with Ireland, I'm no doubt he will be back in the game at some level. Um, because I'm sure there's a lot of clubs out there who'll be only too delighted to take him on board. Um, so uh, that is that is the end of episode 31 of House of Football with Sports Joe. Uh, if you're watching on YouTube, get involved in the conversation. Leave us a comment below. If you're on iTunes, leave us a review. And as I said, it's spelled B R I L L I A N T. And uh, I'd like to say thanks to End of Call and Graham Gartland. Lads, thanks very much for joining us. And uh, we'll see you all again very, very soon. Thank you. You've been listening to House of Football, brought to you by Sports Joe.